Mohawk Honda Glenville, New York, the spot for you to buy a new vehicle this upcoming 2022. Well, 2022 is almost over. 2023s are on the way. So what price do you want to take advantage of? The 2022s being on the way out. Prices may be going low for you. 2023s on the way. The supply chain. We thought this would be over by the fall of 2022. It is still in a bizarre spot and you can still Trade your vehicle in for an incredible price. You maybe never thought you could have gotten years after you bought it. They can do it for you at Mohawk Honda. Shout out to Scott Moynihan. He is back 30 plus years in the automobile industry. He's going to help you find the vehicle you're looking for. My guy's Cam McKenna helped me get the 2022 Pilot EXL sitting in the driveway right now. How do I afford it? How's it happen? I worked with Mohawk Honda. You can do the same thing right now, wherever you're listening, from Mahanison to Schenectady to Glenville to Syracuse, Utica, Watertown, Suffolk County, wherever. Make the drive to Mohawk Honda and work with people that you can trust during the car buying experience. Godzilla Media, we will be there live coming up on Thursday, October 27th, broadcasting live from Mohawk Honda. We've got a few more shows in Mohawk Honda. So if you want to have it in part of your day, watching a little Levac and Gaz, Godzilla Media. We've got dates listed on our website, GodzillaMedia.com. It's Mohawk Honda, where they always go out of their way to please you. Now, back to this Godzilla Media podcast. Hey, ho, let's go. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope you're well wherever you are. Hi. John Pugsley Martin. This is episode 37. We call it Lester Hayes. Pugsley's pit. And as we always do, this time of the show, we ask you the question, where else would you rather be than right here, right now? Oh, good morning. Good afternoon. Hope the coffee cup is full for everybody. By way of introduction, I'm a freelance sports writer for the Albany Times Union avid sports enthusiast, big time homer for my teams without apologies. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter at Pugsley's Pit and taking the podcast on YouTube, Apple, Spotify as part of the Godzilla Media family. On today's show, I'm psyched for this one. It's an honor to welcome renowned writer Jeff Perlman. Uh, Jeff's a New York Times bestselling author of, of 10 books. He's worked at Sports Illustrated, The Athletic, Wall Street Journal, CNN.com, among others. And his latest work, being the, the last folk hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, uh, scheduled to be released today, October 25th. And with that, let's bring Jeff into the show. Mr. Perlman, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. It's great. I'm, I'm curious to the book on Bo Jackson. I will get into some of your other works later on, but what, what was the origin of this? Uh, why why this piece for Bo? And, and to, for my money, he is as good an athlete, maybe the best I've ever seen, given what he did in two different sports. And um, what what brought this subject on for you? I mean, um, there's no great timing story. I grew up in tiny town, Mayo Pack, New York. I was a huge sports fan. One of the biggest guys in my, you know, as a kid rooting for was Bo Jackson. Had his posters on my wall. And I just sort of, as time passes, and we're in, we're in the same age range and like, you start realizing some of these people who you thought were quote unquote immoral kind of get forgotten a little bit, immortal get forgotten a little bit. Uh, My friend Howard Bryant recently wrote a book on Ricky Henderson and sort of time forgets these guys. And I I feel like a part of the job of a biographer is to make sure time doesn't forget these guys. And I consider Bo Jackson one of the most significant athletes of my lifetime, the greatest athlete probably who's ever walked the earth. And I just thought, I want to write a book about this guy. I want to explore Bo Jackson's life and understand him. Was there, 
as you were going through the project, were there any revelations that that you learned that you could tease us with uh, ahead of the book release? Oh man, I mean, there are eight, uh, that's a whole thing. The whole thing is people always say like, did you learn anything new? And I would say, like for this book, I interviewed 720 people. If I didn't learn something new from interviewing that many people, I did something wrong. Um, there's great stuff. I mean, there's, you know, he, the whole, like, how did he go from playing baseball to football? The whole story is just not true. I mean, basically, I, I would tell you this, like he played at Auburn with a kid named Chris Woods, who was a wide receiver uh, at Auburn. Chris Woods joins the Raiders in 86. And Bo Jackson says to Chris Woods, he says, um, when you get to LA, tell Al Davis to draft me next year. So I want to, I want to, I would play for the Raiders. This is after he'd been drafted by the Buccaneers and turned yeah. out. Um, which has never been sort of talked about before. The Raiders almost traded Bo Jackson to Green Bay for the rights to Tony Mandrich. Like came very close to doing so. That was a wise move not to. Um yeah, yeah like you know, just Bo Jackson, you know, when he was with Kansas City, beat the living crap out of Kevin Seitzer, his least favorite teammate of all time in a fight underneath the stadium. Um, Bo Jackson growing like I went to Bessemer, Alabama, where Bo Jackson grew up, went to his childhood home, which is an abandoned lot. Uh, the kid was going, he was as a young boy with a severe stutter, growing up in a just deep, deep, deep poverty, one of 11 kids to a single mom, going to school, either wearing his sister's shoes or socks because he couldn't, they couldn't afford shoes that would fit. Um, there's just a million. It's a fascinating life, a rags to riches life. Yeah. Um, one amazing backstory after the other, especially of the moments you remember him climbing up the wall, him throwing out Harold Reynolds, him running over Bosworth. There are these really thick backstories that fascinated me. The the thing about Bo, you know, for for those that didn't see him play, you try and compare him to somebody, and I, I don't think you can. Um, sheer power, you know, he was faster than Earl Campbell. Earl Campbell was ran as hard as Bo, but but not nearly as fast. Mm -hmm. I mean, you saw some plays the Raiders would do. A Bo would take a step right on the snap and and head left, and Jay Schrader pitch it to him, and he's gone ninety yards. Um, right, it's funny that um, that whole thing was a play called Bo Reverse that they ran. A literally simple. Bo Jackson was not a big guy as far as learning the playbook or learning plays, but they were uh, in practice one day. They ran a play where Bo went the wrong way, and uh, Schrader was he was supposed to go right, but he went left, and the whole thing. And Terry Robisky, the offensive coordinator, was like, "Wait, this is pretty good because he, <laughs> he shifted right, then he went left, and the whole defense followed him right." So they put this play in the playbook. Uh, Bo reverse, and it became this sort of masterclass. There's this iconic run. His first NFL touchdown was against Denver, where steamrolls Mike Harden, the Denver safety, and it was um, it was Bo reverse, where everyone followed him the wrong way. It was an accidental play in the playbook. Was there? Did you get into the whole Bo? Because Marcus Allen was there still, and he essentially got relegated to, to third down back, and the whole thing with him and Al Davis. I mean, how was that uh, dynamic between? Uh, Bo and Marcus and, and how they were as teammates. The whole story is weird because uh, Marcus Allen, you could still make the argument that Marcus Allen is the greatest Raider of all time. I think there's a fair argument to be made. Yeah. Certainly the greatest running back in the team's history. Sure. And um, Al Davis couldn't stand him, could not stand him. And there are a million different, I really got into that because I've always been fascinated. Why did Al Davis hate Marcus Allen? Marcus Allen was a pretty likable guy and he was a great productive running back. And, um, it comes down to either Al Davis hated that he fumbled twice in a big game against Kansas City and never forgave him, or after the Raiders won the Super Bowl in '84, um, Marcus Allen wound up on the cover of this 
of this book about the Raiders. And Al Davis thought he should have been on the cover, but it was petty, petty jealousy. And he really saw Bo Jackson bringing in Bo Jackson as a big middle finger to Marcus Allen. And Bo Jackson shows up. Um, they uh, Tom Flores is still the coach. It's 1987. He tells Marcus Allen, we're moving you to fullback. <laughs> Marcus Allen is not happy about it, but what's he going to do? Also, he was Charles White's uh, fullback at USC when Charles White yep. won the Heisman Trophy. He's a great fullback. If you watch that Monday night game against Seattle in 87, Marcus Allen is blocking his ass off left and right for Bo Jackson. He really is. And after a while, Marcus Allen tells when Art Shell becomes a coach, he's like, I'm not playing fullback anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. Um, the relationship between the two is okay. Like, it was fine. Bo Jackson suspected Marcus Allen was kind of talking trash about him behind his back, and he probably was a little. But they got along okay. It was more Al Davis using Bo Jackson as a tool to make Marcus Allen feel like crap. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Is the the sad part about Bo's uh, both career because he, you know, you you could argue you can make the case he was headed ticketed for the Hall of Fame possibly for both sports. A lot of that would have been his popularity and just people in awe of his abilities, but he was a great player for the Royals. But did just try and where where could he have ended up? I mean, he would come in, the Raiders, he would come in in October. Thank God the Royals weren't any good and never made the playoffs because the Raiders would get him earlier. Uh, and he was still the most dominant back in the league at that point. What, what do you think? Let's just project he never got hurt against the Bengals on that god-awful day. Where what would we be looking back now and looking back at his career? Okay, so first let's go reality. We'll go reality, then we'll go fantasy. All right. Reality-wise, he was planning on playing one more NFL season and then stopping. He didn't love football. He really liked football. He loved baseball. He loved track. Um, so his plan was, I'm going to play one more season. I'll play the '91 season, then I'll be done with football. I'll go back to baseball. Um, but, you know, people's plans change, right? So the money comes in, the fame comes in, whatever. So let's just say, hypothetically, he plays 10 years in the NFL. Okay. I think it's Jim Brown. I really do. I think he is a Jim Brown-level running back. I think he's a no-brainer Hall of Famer in football. He's just preposterously good. Scout after scout, opponent after opponent I interviewed said he was the hardest running back to play against. And, I, you know, you'll get – like I talked to uh, Pat Swilling, the Saints legendary linebacker. He's like, I played against Walter Payton. I played against Earl Campbell. I played, there was nobody like Bo Jackson. So if he goes on and plays a whole career, he's legendary. I think in baseball, if he plays a whole career without getting hurt, he's a really good player. I think he's Sean Green. I think he's Raul Mondesi. I think he's that level. The problem with baseball is he just didn't put enough into it. Like he was super raw. He had in his contract that he'd be called up September of 86. He gets called up. He's not nearly ready. But then he won't go to the – he won't – do the off-season work that needs to be done to become yeah. Mike Trout. He had the Mike Trout physicality, no doubt about it, but he wasn't willing to put in the year-round work to become a Mike Trout-type player. So physically, he could have been a Trout and Mickey Mantle. I don't think he had it in him, um, doggedness, to become that. So it, that just speaks for just what a natural athlete he is then, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Mike Trout comparisons are actually – someone said that to me not that long ago, and I thought, yeah, that's actually really good. He was freakishly athletic, just like Mike Trout and just like Mickey Mantle. Um, he could do anything. You see him climb the – I mean, I think it's funny. Like, you'll see a replay from the 80s of most guys. Like, let's say Dave Winfield or Kirby Puckett does something in the 80s. And we've seen similar antics happen in modern times, right? Have you ever seen anyone else climb a wall like Bo Jackson? No. 
Never. Not one time. Never. Hasn't happened. Like it's a, and the funny thing is he climbs that wall that's in Baltimore. And there are two things I learned about that that's very interesting. Number one, he climbed the wall. And I talked to guys who were in the Baltimore bullpen, which is behind the wall. And they recoiled because they thought Bo Jackson was going to fall over the wall. They literally saw the top of his head. Um, and number two, the guy who hit that ball was Joe Orslak, the journeyman outfielder. Yeah. Orslak told me he didn't realize he was the guy who hit that ball until 10 years later because um, he was looking at the first base coach the whole time. So by the time he looked up, he just saw Bo Jackson with the ball and he assumed it was a normal catch. He had no idea that he was a guy who hit the ball that Bo Jackson climbed up the wall. That's pretty wild. I mean, it's, what about the marketing for Bo, the Nike, you know? I mean, how much of that shaped his, I don't want to say his persona, but just kind of his, his public appeal uh, and his, the perception of him as an athlete too? Usually, because um, the funny thing is, if you think about it, I mean, you were a Raiders fan. He wasn't charismatic. You know, like... No. He wasn't, first of all, he had a stutter. He was very off-putting. You would not want to ask him for autographs in the wrong situation. Even his own teammates, he was very, a lot of teammates told me, like, you could not go up to Bo. You had to be really careful walking up to Bo. He was kind of intimidating and blah, blah, blah. And if you watch those Bo Nose commercials, he doesn't say anything. Or he says, like, three words in some of them. It's very, he was not a gregarious person. The thing I love is... um, you know, the whole Bo knows and Bo, you don't know Diddley commercial with Bo Diddley and yeah. it has like Jim Everett and Kirk Gibson, Wayne Gretzky, John McEnroe, that commercial. Um, it premiered in the 1989 All-Star Game. And that was Bo Jackson's only All-Star Game. He uh, he led off for the American League. He had the second highest vote total, uh, uh, third highest after Kevin Mitchell and Will Clark. He led off for the American League. And... Um, Nike was nervous about this. This is a big, expensive launch. We're going to launch it during the All-Star Game. And all the Nike executives are in New York at Mickey Mantle's restaurant, which was uh, off of Central Park. And they're watching the game, and they're nervous about what's going to happen. And Bo Jackson leads off. I can see it in my mind. I'm sure you can, too. He's facing Rick Russell. Russell's second pitch is a crappy slider. Bo Jackson just hammers her dead center. Vince Scully and Ronald Reagan are in the booth calling the game. Reagan, yes. Eric Davis is playing center field. The ball travels over. It's a perfect blue sky, sunny. And it's this iconic moment. And at Mickey Mantle's restaurant, these Nike executives are going crazy. They're jumping up and down. They're hugging. And all the other patrons are surely like, what the hell are these people doing? But they all realize that this was going to be a signature Bo Jackson moment, the introduction really to the world of Bo Jackson as this dynamic two-sport phenomenon. And it was, and that marketing campaign just went. That's pretty wild. They they see the ball go in the air, it's just exploding in their minds of dollar signs, right? Oh yeah, it's amazing. It's really amazing. And that ad, you know, people forget, again, at the time it was Bo Jackson, it was Michael Jordan, maybe in that order, as far as Nike's priorities. And Jordan was this gregarious, sort of lovable at the time, very well-spoken, very, you know, savvy. And Bo Jackson really, at the core of it, was a kid who stuttered from poor Bessemer, Alabama, who grew up without shoes, who grew up sleeping against a heater, having burns on his body when he would roll over. And all of a sudden, he's this national icon. It's a great story. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I wanted to get into some of your other works, too. Um, the other book credits for you, Showtime on the Lakers of the 80s, uh, the, the Lakers three-ring circus with Shaq and Kobe. Uh, the USFL, Brett Favre, like a few questions on that, especially some of the news with him lately. Walter Payton, which is to me one of the one of the saddest uh, 
endings, you know, for, for a great athlete like that to pass away early. Uh, Roger Clemens book, which I saw in your bio, you list as one of your least favorite projects. And that'll be my next question. But the, the Cowboys in the 90s, boys will be boys. Love me, hate me, Barry Bonds. And the bad guys won on the 86 Mets. But uh, go to the Clemens one. You said one of your least favorite projects. What uh, what spawned that? Um, you know, I wrote the book. It's the only book I've ever written where money was a pretty good motivator. Like I pitched the book. I got a great offer. All right, I'll do Clemens. But did I really want to do Clemens? I don't know. And then like the one thing an athlete or a subject of a book you want to have is some level of sort of self-awareness, curiosity, introspection. I've said this a million times, but it's really true. If you took Roger Clemens' brain scan and you could put it into words, it would be baseball, eat, sleep, breasts. Baseball, eat, sleep, breasts. Like over and over and over again. He wasn't curious. I ended up, the book ended up focusing a lot on his older brother, Randy, who was his, his hero and became a drug addict. And Randy's sister was killed by drug dealers, the whole thing. I just didn't find Clemens that likable or that enjoy. Like Barry Bonds, I wrote a biography of Barry Bonds. And Barry Bonds is, was a despicable guy. Um, but at least he was interesting. And Clemens okay. was kind of boring. Uh, what about and the, the Showtime? The, the, it was a, the book was a an adaptation by HBO uh, in the last year, Winning Time. Um, how did that feel? Seeing your words turned into a, to a, a mini series, that uh, it's quite a compliment. But what are the just the differences that were in the book and, and people saw on the screen? Oh, it, first of all, it was awesome. I always say to anyone, if you if you have your book adapted into an HBO series, definitely go with it. You know. Um, you know, it's definitely an adjustment at first as a guy who writes nonfiction, then seeing, um, you know, so I always say this, this isn't a defense, but it is true. Take any sports movie or TV show based on a true story from Rudy to We Are Marshall to Remember the Titans to Friday Night Lights. And they take leaps and they take exaggerations because it's dramatic. It's a dramatic interpretation. Right. So as an example, in the first episode of the series, uh, there's a one on one game at a white party between Magic and Norm Nixon. That never happened. It was meant to represent something that didn't happen. People say, oh, Jerry West, is the depiction an exaggeration? And I say, I wouldn't say it's an exaggeration, but it's definitely heightened. You know, like it's a TV show. It's supposed to be entertainment. So it's probably the greatest thing that's ha ever happened in my career. It's been yeah. a joy. It's been really exciting. It's fun. It's cool. Um, but people should not take it as a uh, documentary. It's entertainment. Yeah, you know, and anytime you get entertainment, you have to have, you know, you have to have quote a bad guy, right? And maybe that kind of. I wouldn't say Jerry West is a bad guy in this series. I actually love yeah. the Jerry West character. I think um, the Celtics are the bad guys, and Larry Bird is a bad guy, and Red Auerbach is a bad guy. I, I don't know. I actually, just being honest, I love Jerry West. I'm a fan. I've interviewed him multiple times. His autobiography, West by West, is one of the best books I've ever read on sports. But like, it's a pretty accurate portrayal. Like he is tortured. And he is tormented and he does have a temper. I just, I never understood what the fuss on that was, to be honest. Yeah. Mm. What about the, the three ring circus, the, the relationship between Shaq and Kobe? You heard a lot, um, especially as the end when the, when the breakup occurred, occurred and Shaq went off to Miami. Um, what was that era like, um, you know, for that group that the, the main public may not know? I mean, too much tumultuous. I mean, it's interesting because that book was done 
and then Kobe died tragically, obviously. And the book came out after Kobe's death, but it had already been done. So in the book, you read about a young, immature, pain in the ass Kobe. And he was. He was young, and from day one, he thought he was the best player in the NBA. And I think that attitude made him arguably the best player in the NBA. Sure. But, you know, he showed up at training camp in 96, straight out of Lower Marion High School and from suburban Philly. And the Lakers go around in a circle and introduce themselves. And Nick Van Exel says, I'm Nick Van Exel. And Eddie Jones says, I'm Eddie Jones. And Shaq says, I'm Shaq. And Kobe says, I'm Kobe Bryant, Lower Marion. No one here is going to punk me. And the kid's barely 18 years old. And he's younger than my daughter is now. And um, that attitude did not rub Shaq the right way. Yeah. Shaq wanted to be Superman to Kobe's Batman. Kobe had no interest in this superhero garbage. He just thought he was great. And he was great. He was. So, you know, it's a it's a fun period. It obviously people say, how do they win with that, you know, level of tumultuousness? And the answer is they were just uber talented. Yeah. And Phil Jackson was one of the great coaches of all time. What uh, when you're getting into your projects, how are um, how are the athletes themselves, the the subjects of the book? How are they with you? Uh, is it are they they thrilled to have the project being done? Are they standoffish on some topics? What what's your been your experience? I mean, it really depends. It goes project to project. I could totally to go real quick. My first book was about the '86 Mets. Almost all of the Mets talked to me. It was great. Second book was about Bonds. I had interviewed him maybe seven months earlier for an SI profile, but he wouldn't talk with the book. Third book was the '90s Dallas Cowboys. I got almost all of them. Uh, fourth book was Walter Payton. No, fourth book was Clemens. He didn't talk and then ripped me on Twitter later, but everyone <laughs> around him talked. Most everyone around him talked. That's a compliment. Yeah. Walter Payton was deceased. Almost all of his family talked. Most of his teammates talked. Um, Showtime Lakers, most talked. Not everyone, but most. Favre did not talk, but weirdly, his, all his family talked. Um, on and on and on. USFL, a lot of guys talked. The Bo Jackson book, Bo, I spoke to early on for about a half hour during which he told me he didn't mind me writing the book, but he wasn't going to help me with it. So I ended up interviewing 720 people. The thing is, you just, someone told me, a writer told me early on that um, if a guy doesn't talk to you, in your mind, I'm not saying this in any any negative way, like just think of it as if they're deceased. Like approach the book as you would if someone were deceased. Like Walter Payton was deceased. What are you going to do? You're going to be as dogged as possible. Bo Jackson doesn't want to help. You just as dogged as possible. What um, go to the Brett Favre thing? He's had his his name bandied about lately in uh, in the world for non sports stuff. Um, he didn't talk to you for it. How, what, what was that project like? And you know, I I'm not going to ask you your thoughts on now because nothing is fact. But uh, how how was that project with Favre? I don't even care if you ask. I'm going to tell you. I think he's freaking despicable. I do. <laughs> I think it's just I do factually like. Well, I've seen the text messages and you hear everything, you know, you, you draw conclusions when you, when you can, but. And you know what? We should have, we, if we're being honest and this includes myself, I'm not, I shouldn't say you, cause I don't know where you were, but like the minute he was sending text messages to a female reporter with pictures of his penis. Yep. We should have been done with this guy. Like we really should have been done with this guy, I, but we made excuses for him. Myself included. Oh, he's a great quarterback. Oh, the gunslinger. And, we continue to root for him and you ruin this woman's life and it's gross and he's gross. And I have no, I don't care if people read my book. I said this on social media. Don't read my book. There are better people worth reading about than Brett Favre. Yeah. Um, the project itself was actually fascinating because 
early on, I reached out to his sister, Brandy. His family's great. They're really nice people. I reached out to his sister. I said, I'm coming to Mississippi to report. Would you consider meeting with me? Um, she said, does my brother know you're writing this book? And I said, yeah, but I don't know if he's going to talk to me. She said, well, DM me when you come down. I DM'd her. She said, why don't you come over to the house? I go to the five house. Brandy is there with, uh, with, um, with her mom, Benita. So it's me, Benita, Favre, Brett Favre's sister. They say, so is Brett helping you? And I said, I'm not sure. And they said, okay, what do you want to know? And they sent me home with scrapbooks. They literally sent me home with Brett Favre's scrapbooks. Wow. The whole family cooperated. Brett sent me a text late on saying, if I want to tell my story, I'd do it myself. I said, I totally get it. And I wrote the book. Talk about the Walter Payton book. Um, again, I mean, I remember he got, he got sick and everything and just, he just felt bad for the guy, right? He seemed like he did everything right, at least in the, in the public sense. Um, talk about that project uh, for a few minutes. I mean, I love um, I love Walter Payton. I grew up loving Walter Payton. Yeah, I consider him the greatest running back in NFL history, but I'm biased. Um, it's it's really sad writing about someone's demise, especially at a young age. You know, he was 46 when he died, and and 45 when he found out about. So the diagnosis, I thought he was, I think like a lot of public figures, he, he had this tough thing where people perceive you a certain way and you feel the pressure to live up to those perceptions. And you can't be, you can't let people see you struggling. You can't let people see you suffer. And he really didn't even want to announce that he was sick, but rumors were going around Chicago that he had AIDS and. Mm -hmm he just sort of he held a press conference when his son announced jared announced he was going to miami to play football walter also used the occasion to sort of discuss um actually it was a little bit after that he used the you know ultimately discussed and, and broke down his disease and um he wasn't a perfect human being he had his issues he definitely was depressed i think he probably suffered from some level of cte um but i just found him to be a very courageous and heroic figure in many ways the um was that your favorite book or at least favorite uh part of the process the research was that was on Peyton or do you have one that stands out USFL book was probably my favorite number one because everyone told me not to write it nobody would care number two because I just was so passionate about the USFL the USFL was when I was a kid USFL came along I was 10 years old I loved everything about the USFL everything about the USFL um that it coincided with Donald Trump running for president and that he owned the New Jersey generals of the USFL yeah. made it a little less enjoyable in a way. Cause I, this is no indictment of anyone. I can't stand Trump and he ruined my favorite football league. Um, <laughs> but it was fascinating. And, and the thing is like all those guys were thrilled to talk, thrilled. Yeah. To talk. You want to talk to me about the USFL? Tell me when and where. And it was just a joy ride for me. I tell you why I liked it because growing up in the Bay Area in the 70s and the Raiders moving to LA at that point, and as soon yep. as they put the Oakland Invaders in, hey, I'm an Invader fan. Give me a hat, right? You know, just they had a great logo. Open. They had a great logo. The hand with the thunder. Yeah. With yeah. The Excuse me. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. I'm like, sign me up. Football in the Oakland Coliseum. I'm there. 100%. You and about 12 other people. Yeah. <laughs> well, sadly. Did we ever find out what happened? I remember that 30 for 30. Nobody could locate the, the $3 check that the USFL got. Oh, no, I know exactly where it is. It's in the safety deposit box in Memphis, Tennessee. The guy who wound up running, really running the league, uh, Steve Earhart, has it in a safety deposit box. Okay, okay. 
I hope it didn't have a cache within 90 days. Yeah. Insignia on there it might not work. I have a question on the 86 Mets book. You, you called it the bad guys one. They they were for me, they were a fun group to watch. Uh carefree. They went at it probably uh just as long into the night after games as they played hard after the game and during the game. And same with you're in the Cowboys in the 90s. Um how about that Met book? That was uh what a I'm not a Met fan, I'm an A's fan, but that was quite the roller coaster ride living here in New York and going to college with a bunch of Met uh, fans. First of all, so I was um, 86, I was 13 going on 14. That team was really special to me and really nostalgic to me. Yeah. And when I was a kid, again, I grew up in Mayo Pack, New York and two houses up from me, the Garganos lived. And one of my best friends was Dennis Gargano and his dad, Vinny Gargano, was a diehard, diehard Mets fan. And every game he'd be sitting on his couch in front of the TV with a Coca-Cola. I can picture it in my head a million percent. He'd smoke Viceroy cigarettes. And when I was over at Dennis's house, I'd really gravitate to Mr. Gargano. And he'd break down the Met games and talk about Gooden and Darling and Strawberry and all that stuff because my parents didn't care about sports. So it was my first book. My agent at the time, Susan Reed, suggested the project. I thought it was great. It was like diving headfirst into history, into youth, into nostalgia. Um, it's almost like the USFL. Everyone loved talking about it because it's like talking about the best time in your fraternity, you know, as a college kid. Um, the reason it's called the bad guys one is because Davey Johnson um, was asked at the time after they won, he said, nobody's going to, nobody's going to be happy. We won outside of New York. And someone said, well, why do you say that? And he said, because the bad guys won because they were viewed as the bad guys in baseball. They drank beer, they smoked cigarettes. They came into town. They had sex with your wives. They were just badasses. They were dirty and gritty and tobacco juice and, you know, Dykstra and Backman and Hernandez. And they were just taking no crap and cocky as you could be. And they did they did two songs during the season proclaiming how great they were. It was just the yeah. best. So fun to write about. It was a it was a fun group to watch. Again, I, I, I was in college and a lot of my friends were, were Met fans. And I got to identify with the players because I saw all their games. And like I said, Dykstra and Backstrom um, or Backman. Yeah, uh, yeah, they couldn't. They couldn't backman. They they couldn't be a better one-two punch for that team. And you you didn't even talk about Gary Carter, who was such a rah-rah guy. People hated him just because he enjoyed playing baseball. Wait, I love this conversation. I'm going to be nerdy real quick. Is that okay? Okay, go for it. They had Keith Hernandez at first base, who, in my opinion, should be a Hall of Famer. He's the greatest defensive first baseman of all time. They had at second baseman Wally Backman and Tim Tuffo, two guys who start for a lot of teams. Shortstop was a weak spot, Rafael Santana, but that's okay. Third base, they had two guys, Ray Knight and Howard Johnson, who could have started for most teams. Gary Carter was the best catcher in baseball. Um, they had Kevin Mitchell coming off the bench, a future NL MVP, right? They had yep. Darryl Strawberry in right field. He was the best power hitter in baseball at that time. Center field, they had two center fielders, really. They had Mookie Wilson. They had Lenny Dykstra. Either of those guys start for most teams. Coming off the bench, they had two elite pinch hitters, Lee Mazzilli and Danny Heap. And then, I apologize, then... Their starting rotation, okay, was Gooden, who was on Coke that year, so he wasn't as good as everybody. He was still really good. Bobby Ojeda was a number one starter. Ron Darling was a number one starter. Sid Fernandez was a number one starter. Their fifth starter, Rick Aguilera, went down as one of the great closers of the 90s. Yep. And they had two closers, Jesse Orozco and Roger McDowell. They were so preposterously stacked. It's almost a joke how good they were. But the interesting part about that was, and maybe it was just the competition with the Astros and the players, they had to, to walk a high wire to get through the NLCS and the World Series. 
um, maybe that just speaks to the competition too, or maybe that was just the personality and flair of that Mets team. Well, I mean, the Astros were great, first of all. The Astros weren't as good as the Mets, but the Astros are great. And they had legit, I mean, Mike Scott, no, Mike Scott, who was scuffing the ball, but owned the Mets. Nolan Ryan was still top shelf. Bob Nepper was a number three, a really good starter. You know how it goes. You see it now in playoffs. If you can get hot pitching, yeah, you got a shot. Then you go to the World Series. You got Clemens. You got Bruce Hurst. Those are two top shelf starters. And the Red, the Red Sox are really good. Like the Red Sox, the the talent gap between the Mets and the Red Sox was very thin. So, <clears throat> I enjoyed it because being an A's fan, the Red Sox beat the A's in '75. I became a baseball fan in 72 when I moved to Northern California. So all I knew was A's World Series. So I'm still not over the Red Sox beating the A's in 75. So them getting their guts ripped out in 86 was okay with me. You know, you had some good times as a mid-70s A's fan. So you can't whine too much. No, I know. I know. I know. Well, I I, I bitched a lot this year, though. So we just Fair. need a stadium. What did, if, if you could pick one fact of all your research, your whole career, is there one singular mind-blowing fact that come out um anyone that that stands out above any other you're saying from all the books i've written what's everything you've written everything ever were you saying what's the one nugget of a detail what's one nugget that just blew you away that you didn't see i got one and you're gonna i hope this doesn't underwhelm okay go for it i wrote the walter payton book and after walter payton was done playing with the bears he went this is years later he wound up as an assistant coach he was the JV basketball coach at a high school in suburban Illinois. And one day he gave a pep talk to the players. And he said, um, everything in sports is about trust. You have to trust your teammates. You have to trust blah, 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 blah. And he takes off his Super Bowl ring and he gives it to one of the players. And he says, I trust you with this ring. And I want you to keep this ring for the weekend and bring it back to me Monday. I trust you with my Super Bowl ring. Okay. Kid's like, holy crap. He takes the <laughs> ring home. And um, he, uh, I got to close my door. My dog is going crazy. He takes the <laughs> ring home. And that night, the kid has a party at his house. Oh, man. And he's passing the ring around. He's passing Walter Payne's ring around. And at the end of the night, he says, um, he says, all right, who has the ring? No one has a ring. He's like, no, seriously, who has Walter Payne's ring? No one has a ring. He has to go to school on Monday and he tells Walter Payton, I don't know how to tell you this, but I lost your Super Bowl ring. And Walter Payton plays it cool, but he's actually devastated, okay? Years pass. Walter Payton has died. So it's the early 2000s. Walter Payton died in 99. It's early 2000s. And um, there's a there's a guy living in Purdue at Purdue. He's a student at Purdue University. And he has a dog named Bailey. And one day his dog is digging at the bottom of a couch, he's digging at his couch. This is in a, you know, like a apartment at Purdue University, he's digging at the couch, digging at the couch, a dog Bailey digging. Bailey, what are you digging at? What are you digging at? And the guy reaches in and there's Walter Payton's Super Bowl ring. The couch had been in whoever kid's party, whatever the kid was who threw the party. Somehow the couch, the ring fell between the cushions, fell into a rip in the couch, wound up in the bottom of the couch, the couch was given to a family friend who took the couch to college at Purdue University. Wow. The ring is sitting there at the bottom of the couch at Purdue University. It says Walter Payton on it. This guy somehow reaches out to Connie, Walter Payton's widow, brings her the ring 
at her house years after Walter Payne's death. That doesn't underwhelm at all. That's wild. Crazy. I'm trying to picture that kid. Right. What if Bailey, what is that? A ball, a bone, a coin? Wow. Oh, it's Walter Payne's Super Bowl ring in my couch at Purdue University. What? That's wild. Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, one nugget, I, uh, Jeff Perlman.com, by the way, uh, where I did some research here. You wrote that story on John Rocker back in the in the late 90s that really blew up, given everything he said to you and just made him public enemy number one, particularly in New York. True. What, what were your thoughts during that interview and writing it? Did you think it was going to turn into as big of a big a thing as it did? Um, no, no, not at all. I didn't know. Also, you have to remember, this is a... Story came out last issue of 1999, Sports Illustrated. So this is pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, pre-Instagram, yep. pre-TikTok. Stuff didn't go viral in the way it does now, right? Um, as I'm driving around with him in Atlanta, I'm thinking, I can't believe this guy's saying all this stuff. <laughs> but as you know, Sean, like, as a reporter, your job isn't to... If I, I'm a Jewish New Yorker, right? If I cover a KKK rally, my job isn't to sit there at the rally and argue with the Klansmen. My yep. job is to try to understand the rally. And if yep. you're driving around Georgia with some guy you vehemently disagree with, who says things that offend you to the core, it's not my job to say, listen, man, how can you say that about gays? Or how can you say that about African-Americans? Like, I, Your job is to listen because you're trying to find out who this person is. So for the seven or eight hours I spent with John Rocker, what I'm really trying to do is understand who he is, understand why he thinks the way he does, and then present him accurately. So... It wasn't like the most fun day of my life, but it was interesting and revealing. And that's sort of your job as a journalist. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I agree. You don't have to. You don't have to agree with it. You're just there to report it, right? Yep. And last question to aspiring authors and, and journalists: what what sort of advice would you give uh, people interested in getting into this? And and as just as a quick follow up, you take a project like Bo. How many? How long does this process take? You interview over seven hundred people and and just kind of put it all in all in the focus uh the project took about two years i mean by the time the book comes out it's about two and a half to three years you know okay print it and fact check and edit and legal and all that um you know what i would say to aspiring journalists i guess it's two things i mean i don't know if you feel this way but like everyone you know there's been a lot about the media the last few years the whole bullshit i'm sorry the whole like That's fake it. news fake news and, uh, and blah 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 like number one it's the greatest job in the world. It is. I haven't regretted for one second entering this profession. Yeah. I love being a writer. I love being a journalist. I love that I can ask any question. I love that I get to listen to people. I love that I get to probe. I love that I get to write. Like there's an old Dorothy Parker quote. I, I hate writing. I love having written. And I do feel that a lot. Like the writing can be torture, but seeing something at the end is joyful. And the places it takes you the stories you have. When I was at Sports Illustrated, a colleague named Jack McCallum said to me, he's like, you're not going to be the richest, but you'll have the best stories at your high school reunions. And yeah. you do, you just do. So I love it. And the advice I would give is number one, you have to be dogged. Number two, you have to be open-minded and you have to be willing to listen. And um, you have to suppress any instinct you have to interject and to talk and to give your take like you're an observer you're a fly on the yeah. wall that's the joy of it but it can't be about you and when you see sort of the stephen a smiths and the skip baylesses and i'm not even dumping on those guys but like they're exceptions to the rule like in this business your number one skill is not talking it's listening 
And if you love that, if you love listening and you love hearing stories and you love chronicling things, it's a great freaking gig. And it's needed more than ever. We need accountability in this world. Yeah, by the way, the, the fake news thing, that that's a that's a no for me. I don't, oh. I don't do that. That bothers me. Um, you know, for me, it might take if I go to games, you know, if I walk through a crowd, I cover Division One college hockey, I'll generally try and put my press credential in, inside my coat or my shirt. I don't want people, I want to be anonymous. Yeah. Right. And and most importantly, I never, ever, ever want to become part of the story. And also, I just want to say, like, 98% of journalists I know aren't in it for the quote unquote fame. Yeah. They're not in it for the airport recognition. They're not in it to get their quote unquote side heard like they love reporting and they love working hard. And the fake news thing really bothered me because it basically became and has become anything you read that doesn't support me is fake news. Yeah. Right. That's what's become. That's what fake news means. It's a synonym for anything you read that doesn't support me is fake. And that is a really, really dangerous place to be. And when I would watch political rallies and people are screaming at the media and foaming at the mouth of the media, I don't care if it's Fox News or CNN or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. It just bothers me to my core because most journalists enter this profession with most of us are not Sean Hannity. Most of us are not Rachel Maddow. Most of us are straight shooters who are just trying to present the news. Yeah, I agree with that 100 percent. But uh, that's a good way to end it. But look, Jeff, I, I really appreciate your uh, your time. Where, where can uh, people find the book uh, on, on both? I think it's anywhere, Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or whatever. You can go to my website, jeffperlman.com. And I've I've been posting on Twitter a day-by-day my top 10 favorite Bo Jackson plays of all time. So at Jeff Perlman. Awesome. Well, look, I really appreciate the time. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Good luck. All right, Jeff Perlman. That was fun. Hey, look, we have some breaking news here on on Pugsley's Pit. Uh, Came up. On a show, uh, getting there with Gaz that had me on a week or so ago. Uh, my book, as I, I promote each week, Letters from Daddy, Dear Liam and Noah, is in the final stages and getting ready to be published out there in the world. Thanks to uh, to our good friends at the Saratoga Springs Publishing Company. Uh, we're going through some final edits right now. Uh, this is a project I did two years ago. It was self-published uh, through Amazon, but uh, we're moving on from that, and uh, I'm thrilled to be partnering with Saratoga Springs Publishing for uh, for this project. And I'm very excited and thank you to them uh, for their faith in, in the project and uh, more on that to come. But uh, that's going to do it for this week. Again, thank you so much to Jeff Perlman, a busy, busy guy and, and a great writer, great author. I look forward to reading the Bo Jackson book, especially as a Raider fan. Um, and I think I feel a little better knowing that he was going to play one more year. 31 years ago he got hurt and now I think I might have found found some comfort and by the way Kevin Seitzer are you taking on Bo underneath the stadium you and me my friend Uh, thanks again everybody hey we're back at it next week and uh, we'll see you then bye now